All right, put your hands here because Christmas is just around the corner. I'm excited. Man, I'm still a kid at heart. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Well, it's great having you here today. And let me just piggyback a little bit on what that video said. We really, really, really encourage you to find somebody that you can invite to come to our Christmas services. More than one person, even an entire family, friends, whatever, your coworkers. Here is a statistic that I heard recently I thought was interesting. 82% of people would attend a service if they were just invited. 82%. So over 8 out of 10 people, if they're just invited, they would actually come. So here's the thing. You know people that we at the church staff do not know, but you know them. You go to work with them. They're your neighbors, your friends. You go to school with them. And so invite them and bring them to our church services because who knows that an invitation won't change a life. God can use your invitation to change their life. And you say, well, who do I invite? Well, who in your world needs hope? That's a good question. Or maybe who in your world needs peace? Or who in your world needs love? Invite them, which by the way, that's everyone you know, all right? So, so listen, just invite people and, uh, and you know what? It's gonna be an amazing Christmas. Also, we really are needing people to serve. We say this all the time, attend one service and serve one service. If you could do that, if you say, you know, I'd be willing for my, the Christmas services just to be able to serve in some area, that would be super helpful because we want to make sure that we set an environment at all of our City First locations for people to come who are guests and to have a great experience so that they can hear about the hope of Jesus Christ. I recently saw a video online that was about this kid who was, was asked to serve, and I want to tell you, his attitude about it is amazing. Let's go ahead and watch this. Go on. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, uh, one of the three wise men? No. One of the innkeepers? No. Um... Rejected. But it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay, um, you tell me then, because... I'm door holder number three, I'll be holding doors. That's amazing! Holding doors for who? Um, probably um, Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? Yeah, and... What did you do? And I was like... I'm a door holder. Get in there. Let's go. Yes. Whoa. And, and no, I'll have to wear like brown. Really? Yeah, probably. Excellent. That's well. That's really smart, Milo. That is the spirit we want to have, right? I'm door holder number three. Get in there. All right. So if you say you could hold a door, you could wave people in in the parking lot, or you can help with kids, or you can help whatever, we will find a place that, that you would, would enjoy serving in. So just go to our website, and you can click on the information email, and we can get you information. Or stop at the Next Step booth at one of our locations on the way out the door and say, hey, listen, I'm willing to get some information about serving, because, man, let's all be door holders, all right? I, I wanna, after him, I want to be a door holder now. 
Well, anyway, we are in a series called Discover the Wonder. In other words, Discover the Wonder of Christmas. Maybe for some of us, rediscovering the wonder of Christmas. Christmas should not be a season that we just survive, but rather it's a season that we have Wonder. I will tell you, in the past, there's been some Christmases that I feel like, oh, just get me through this. And then you get to the week after Christmas, and you have a, you have a holiday hangover, right? You're like, I don't want another holiday for a little while. Well, here's the thing. That is not the way Christmas should be. It should be full of wonder. And, and many times, Christmas can be full of rote and routine and, and ritual even, um, because we all know the story. I get asked all the time, people ask me, what are the hardest sermons to preach? And I will tell you, it is Christmas and Easter. And here's the reason why. Every year, Jesus is born in the manger. And every year, he raises from the dead. Now, these are important moments in our faith. I'm not making light of that. But to come at it at a different way but tell the same story, sometimes it is difficult and it's difficult for you as a person who's a part of City First. It's probably like, man, you know what? I already know the Christmas story. Even if you're unchurched, you probably at least have a vague kind of knowledge of the Christmas story. Well, what we want to do in this series is we want to talk about sparking that wonder again to having that heart connection, not just getting through it Christmas, but instead having a heart connection. Let me give you um, a little example of what I mean. I'm going to say the first line of a Christmas program, or poem, excuse me, a Christmas poem, and I want you to um, finish the sentence, all right? Here we go, ready? "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house." Now, that's pretty amazing. No one gave you a heads up before you came to church today. Pastor Jeremy is gonna quiz you on this. You better go refresh your memory, go cram for the quiz like you did back in high school or whatever. No, instead, you knew it. It was right there. Isn't it amazing that you knew a Christmas poem that was written 200 years ago and half the time you can't remember your kids' names, right? <laughs> right? But you know it. Why? It's familiar. But do you know the background of the poem. Like the poem may be familiar. Some of you might be able to even recite the whole thing, but do you know the background of it? Well, this poem was written in 1823, literally 200 years ago this month. It was written by a man by the name of Clement Clark Moore. He was a scholar and he was a professor of Oriental and Greek literature and taught at a seminary in New York City. He was a very um, well-read and knowledgeable ind individual. In fact, he wrote another famous work along with this poem that I'm sure all of you know, and it is the Compendious Lexicon of the Hebrew Language, all right? I'm sure you've all memorized that one too, right? Those were his two works. Now, he was way more proud of his Hebrew literature book than he was of his Christmas poem. And here's the reason why, though. He was in a little dilemma. He had six children. And he felt like his children, every December, that Christmas was becoming too familiar to them. It was just becoming rote and ritual. So what he decided to do is he decided to write a poem that rhymed that his six children could memorize so that every single Christmas, 
Christmas wouldn't be familiar, it would be something that is exciting, so he wrote this poem. He never, ever had any intention of publishing it or having it go beyond his family. Instead, he just wanted it for his kids. He was actually a little worried about it getting published or getting out because he had borrowed from some other authors to make this poem. And being a scholar, he was very careful that he didn't want to plagiarize. One of his inspirations was William Shakespeare. If you're a, a, a literature major in here, you might put this connection together. But in Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 1, William Shakespeare writes, Not a mouse stirring. Well, Clement borrowed that idea, not even a creature, not even a mouse, okay, was stirring, and so he was afraid that he would be accused of plagiarizing, but the poem got out, and 200 years later, City First, we're in our services, I speak the opening line, and you can finish it, why? Because this poem is so familiar. It's kind of ironic, actually. The poem that was created so that Christmas wouldn't become familiar is now become a familiar part of Christmas. But here's the point I want to make. You know the poem, but I just gave you some color behind the author and how the poem was created. And you know what that does? The next time you hear that poem, the next time you read the poem, it is going to bring more life to that moment, right? Why? Because sometimes you gotta get behind the story or behind the familiar to actually discover the wonder. That's what we have to do every December. As Christ followers, we need to get behind the story. We know that Jesus was born in a manger. We know that Mary and Joseph were there. They couldn't find room in the inn. We know all of this, but we gotta get behind it so that it creates wonder and our hearts connect to the story, you could say. So, you gotta understand something, that familiarity is not bad, but familiarity is often the enemy of wonder. You hear that? So, how do we re-energize the wonder? How do we spark the wonder? Well, last week I started talking in this series about the shepherds and how they were visited um, on the backside of a desert somewhere uh, by angels, and, and they came to see the baby Jesus. And I, I, I asked you, I said, consider this to spark some wonder. Consider personally seeking Jesus like the shepherds did, where they personally went to go find Jesus. Number two, help others find Jesus because they, they talked about what happened and everyone wondered. They had wonder. And we received the legacy offering last week and we're doing it again this week. If you'd like to give, you can. But you know what? That was last week. Let's continue with the story of the shepherds this week and discover how we can find wonder. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Let's do a little recap here. When the angels had gone away from them into the heaven... The shepherds began saying one to another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in a hurry. They didn't diddly-dally. They went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were astounded and wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things. Now, now let me stop there a minute. Mary treasured all these things. What things, all right? Gave careful thought to them 
and pondering them in her heart. So she meditated on it. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told to them. There's some powerful truths behind the Christmas story here. And we gotta get past the familiarity. Let's start with Mary for a moment. Mary, you may not know this, all right? Some of you maybe have grown up in church, you might have heard this before. Some of you that maybe have recently come to faith or recently come to church may just be hearing this for the first time, but you know that Mary, most theologians believe, was somewhere between the age of 12 and 14 years old when she gave birth to Jesus. Now hold on there a minute. How many of you have daughters? Let me see your hands, all right? All right, I want you to imagine that your 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter is giving birth to the Messiah. I mean, let alone giving birth at all. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, this is, this is kind of crazy. She is engaged to a man by the name of Joseph, who's probably just a little bit older than her, maybe like 15, 16, or 17 years old. Now, Though being married at that age is very foreign in our American culture, it was not during Bible days. This was actually very common. In fact, it's even common in some places around the world today. If you were a woman back in Bible days and you started to get to be 17, 18, 19, or 20 years old, you are uncharacteristically old. People were like, why aren't you married yet, right? I mean, could you imagine your 16 or 15-year-old daughter coming to you and going, I'm engaged, I'm gonna get married. How would you respond to that, right? Well, in America, we're like, no way, but back then, it was very normal. It was arranged marriages most of the time, and, uh, and that these, these young couples would get together and start off a life very early. Mary was most likely born into an under-resourced family in the town of Nazareth, where she lived. And when the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to become pregnant, yet you're going to remain a virgin, it's going to be what we now call an immaculate conception, her response, listen, was out of obedience, not out of understanding. She chose to believe that God knew exactly what he was doing. She didn't complain. If you go back and read the scripture, she didn't complain. She didn't question God. She fully submitted to God's will. Now, can we pause a moment as we dive beneath this story, get underneath it a little bit? Can we just pause a moment and ask ourselves a question? Are we as good at obeying God as Mary was when we don't understand what's going on? In fact, I'd ask it this way. How good are you at obeying God when you don't understand what's happening, what's going on in life. I'm convicted personally by Mary. I'm convicted by her faith. A young teenage girl that's like, God, not my will, thy will be done. You know, being pregnant outside of marriage in biblical times was a major cultural problem. If the father of the child refused to marry the woman, most likely that woman would give birth to that child and never get married for the rest of her life. She would remain unmarried because no man would want to marry her. That, that's what happened back in Jesus' day. And, and if her family rejected her, let's say her family was like, what, you're pregnant, you're not married, and they rejected her, kicked her out on the street, there was not too many options for her outside of begging to try to survive. 
Mary got this information that she was going to become pregnant, even though she was still a virgin, while they were still engaged and not married yet. And can I tell you, she knew immediately because she knew the culture, this was going to turn her life completely upside down. There was going to be huge pushback to this reality in her life. And yet Mary had the faith to believe that God would take care of all of the things in her life. Before she even talked to Joseph, while the angel had told her this information, she responded back with these words. She responded back, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. That is convicting to Jeremy DeWert. I don't know if that's convicting to you, but that's convicting to me. Because if God is gonna ask me to do something that's gonna literally turn my life upside down, my first response is, can you give me a little bit more information about that? Right? And yet Mary's was, no matter what, God, I choose to serve you. Wow. Do you know that the bedrock or the foundation of the Christmas story starts with ideas of faith and obedience. How are we with faith and obedience? Mary tells Joseph eventually. Joseph doesn't believe her at first, but after doing some soul searching and then an angel actually visits Joseph and says, hey, Mary isn't lying, then Joseph says, okay, I believe you, Mary. I believe your story. Now Mary, many months later, is in her third trimester. She might be having Braxton Hicks contractions, She knows that the time is coming soon. She's having trouble sleeping. She's very uncomfortable. And Joseph is required to travel to his ancestral home of Bethlehem, which is about 90 miles away from where they live in Nazareth. And he has to go there to pay taxes. I always say this, but think about it. You know, April 15th shows up and we write a check or we have money deducted from our bank account. Imagine having to go 90 miles without a car And on the back of a horse or a donkey or walk just to go pay taxes to the man. I mean, mean, think about how happy that would make you feel, right? They were not happy about it, I'm sure. In fact, the Jewish people did not like the Roman Empire that had occupied their land, and yet they had to pay these ginormous taxes. You think your tax rate is bad? Back in biblical days, the average Jew had to pay 70% of their annual wage to taxes to the Roman government. So they're having to walk and they're having to go maybe on a horseback or on a donkey 90 miles, but nowhere, listen to this, nowhere in any ancient manuscript or historical record does it say that the woman had to come with the man to the ancestral home to pay taxes. We can't find it. So here begs the question, if you are in your third trimester, you are maybe weeks away or a couple weeks away from giving birth, why in the world, Mary, would you travel 90 miles with your, you know, best friend Joseph to go pay taxes? It makes no sense. So you have to get behind the story. Can't just read it at face value. Well, here's the reason why. Probably Mary was fearing for her life. You say, well, why would she be fearing for her life? Well, she lived in Nazareth, and her friends and her family lived in Nazareth, and I want you to imagine for nine months, she has been going around telling people, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. Joseph and I haven't been messing around. 
it is God who made me pregnant, and an angel came to announce that I'm giving birth to the Messiah. Imagine how that went over in her hometown with her family and her friends. Instead, they were probably thinking that she's lying or she's lost her mind, and they rejected her. And also, we know this, that the Nazarene people were not friendly people. Fast forward 30 plus years after Jesus is born, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he's trying to talk there to the people and the Bible says that he could do very few miracles because of the Nazarene's negativity. That they were such a cynical, critical, mean bunch of people that he couldn't even do miracles there. The son of God couldn't do miracles there. If you go back and read that story, they actually tried to push him off a cliff. They, 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 they tried to push Jesus off a cliff. Now, I know, I know that your Christmas dinner is a little crazy, but I don't think one of your cousins has tried to kill you lately. That's what happened with Jesus' family. So, back to Mary. These people are mean. They don't like her. They think that she has created blasphemy and sin and all this. And so Joseph, knowing this, most likely said, Mary, I know this is the last thing you want to do. You're super pregnant, but you got to come with me. we got to go pay taxes. I can't leave you alone here in Bethlehem because if I come back, you may not be alive. So they go on this track 90 miles. They go to Bethlehem. You know the story. There's no room in the inn, right? There's no place for them to stay. Why? Because Bethlehem, this little town is swelling with people. All these people are in town to pay taxes. And all the hotels are full. So they find a place to stay where animals are being kept. And that night, Jesus is born. Mary goes into labor, gives birth to Jesus, and they lay him in a manger. A manger is a nice word for a feeding trough. It's basically a feeding trough. And Mary treasured all these things in her heart, giving careful thought to them and pondering them in her heart. (laughs) That begs the question, what are you giving thanks for? Yes, Jesus is born, but this has been a really rough ride. This has not been a pleasant nine months What did you ponder, Mary? What were you giving careful thought to? The last nine months have turned your life absolutely upside down. You have been rejected by family and friends. They walk past you in the streets of Nazareth and they won't even look at you or talk to you. In fact, you are running for your life most likely. There's struggle, there's confusion. You just had the pain of childbirth, but there's been nine months of pain before that. What are you pondering? Well, you know what Mary is pondering? She's pondering the goodness of God. Oh, let's step behind the story a minute. Let's get behind just the story that we know. Let's get deeper into it for a second. Are we people who thank God for his goodness when we go through months and months and months of confusion and battle and hardship? Mary was that person. I don't know if you had a good year or a bad year. I don't know if you had a year of struggle or a year of victory. I don't know if it's been battle or if it's been breakthrough. I don't know what it is, but can we be like Mary for a moment? Can we have Christmas be a time to stop, to stop for a second, to to just pause and meditate and give careful thought 
to the fact that Jesus is here and he's with us and our God is supremely good even when life isn't. Even when life isn't. It's hard to give thanks to God and think he's good when, when things are not good in your life. But here's this little teenage girl who's pondering in her heart the goodness of God, even though the last nine months of her life have not been all that good. In fact, it's still not gonna be good. Even though Jesus is born, she is not at the finish line yet when it comes to hardship. In fact, there's this mad king by the name of Herod who finds out that a king has been born in Bethlehem and he's insecure and he's a narcissistic lunatic and a dictator and he decides that he is going to have every baby boy under the age of two executed. So Mary and Joseph have to actually hide in Egypt. They have to go to Egypt, to a foreign land, and hide there because of this mad king is trying to kill Jesus. This is not an easy life. Mary does not have a lot to be thankful for, you could say, just naturally thinking. But here's the thing. Sometimes wonder isn't a feeling, it's a choice. Sometimes wonder is not something that you're like, oh, I got goosebumps during Christmas. No, instead, I choose to stir up wonder. It's kind of like a snow globe, right? That after a while, your wonder, your thankfulness, your gratitude all begins to settle to the bottom. And sometimes what we have to do is we have to stir up our gratitude. And we have to stir up our wonder. And we have to stir up our gratefulness. And we have to say, God, I realize 2023 has been good, it's been bad, it's been ugly, it's been everywhere in between. But God, at Christmas this year, I wanna thank you. You are a good God. The very fact that I'm here is a testimony of your faithfulness. My life has been turned upside down, but you know what that's done? It's stirred up my wonder. It's stirred up my gratitude. It's stirred up my thankfulness. Oh, may we stir those things up, a freshness in our relationship with God. How? By stopping and giving careful thought. How has God been there this year in 2023? Whether it's been a good year, a bad year, an indifferent year, how has God been there? If you were to stop and give careful thought, I guarantee you, you're gonna come up with a whole list of ways that God has sustained you. He's given you grace. He's given you mercy, forgiveness. He's given you the ability to make it through the unthinkable, right? God is a good, oh, if you believe God is a good God, can you just one time put your hands together right now? Let's thank him. He's a good God. Oh, he's a good God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, there are things this year you would have rewritten differently. If you, if you scripted out the narrative of this year, you would have written a very different script. But guess what? God is still God in the middle of it. And the very fact that you're here is a testimony of God's goodness. It takes no effort to complain. Complaining is our mother tongue. We as, we as individuals, we, we can complain. However, it takes effort to stir up the wonder and the gratitude and the thankfulness.
to say, God, you're a good God. So I want to encourage you, take a moment this Christmas season. Sometime between now and Christmas, you had about two weeks to do this. Take a moment and focus on what God has done for you. Maybe even make a list, a list in your phone, you know, in your note app, or maybe write it out the old-fashioned way, right? Make a list. Mary pondered and the shepherds praised. Mary pondered in the shepherd's praise. Let's go back to the shepherds for a minute. It says that they returned after they saw the baby Jesus, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, everything that they experienced, just as it was told to them. Again, let's get behind the familiarity of this story. Let's go a little bit deeper. These were not normal shepherds. Now, I realize you may have grown up in Sunday school being taught that these were random guys on the backside of a desert somewhere with a little flock of sheep, and they're just out there, and all of a sudden, the angels show up and and start singing and all that. Well, that is partially true, but these shepherds were most likely very unique shepherds. Why? Because they were probably employed by the temple in Jerusalem to shepherd a very special flock of sheep. See, in Jerusalem, that is where the main temple of the Jewish faith was located. That's where, you know, the, 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 they housed, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they housed, you know, the presence of God was in this temple. There was a big curtain there and things like that that kind of separated every from the, uh, from the outside from what was going on on the inside. And every year, every year, Jewish families would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during what was called Passover. It was a holiday, it was a time of remembrance, and they would take their entire family from wherever they were in what is now the Middle East, and they would go to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. What's Passover? Well, Passover was remembering what had happened hundreds and hundreds of years previous, where the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And this is the story of Moses, you know, let my people go. You've maybe seen the movie before, right? Well, anyway, what had happened was is that God had sent these plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, but Pharaoh is stubborn. So the final plague was a nuclear plague. And that was this, is that God took his hand off of protection off of that area and allowed the enemy's death angel to come into the land of Egypt. And basically, the firstborn of every family was going to die. But he had told his people, the Jewish people, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a spotless lamb. I want you to take a little lamb, and I want you to prepare it for a meal. But as you're preparing the lamb for a meal, to also take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorpost, on the vertical and the horizontal beams of the front door of your house. And when the death angel passes across that land, the death angel will not be able to touch that house because that house is protected by God. So now hundreds of years later, Jewish people in Jesus' day were making their way to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate and remember the passing over of the death angel, and yet their families were untouched. It was a celebration. So by tens of thousands of people, every year, families would travel to Jerusalem. And part of what they did is their Passover celebration is that they would, they would get a lamb 
and they would bring it to the temple. Well, think of the logistics of this for a moment. There's tens of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem for this Passover ceremony. All of them, every family needs a lamb. So the temple decided that they would raise lambs. Do you know where the stockyard of the temple lambs were that the people would later on get and use for Passover? You know where those temple lambs were raised? A little town called Bethlehem. The stockyards of the temple lambs were in Bethlehem, surrounding Bethlehem. You know who these shepherds were? They were temple shepherds, most likely. And they were taking care of the lambs that would be used for Passover. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it interesting that Jesus was born in Bethlehem where the temple lambs were being raised? He was born in Bethlehem, and 33 years later, he would walk into Jerusalem for the final time through the sheep gate, the Bible says. This is where they'd bring the Bethlehem lambs in to the city so that people could pick their lambs. Jesus walks in through the sheep gate where only the sheep usually would go through, and he comes in as the Lamb of God. And he dies on a cross and his blood is shed on a horizontal and vertical beam called a cross. And because of his death and his resurrection, death has no power over his believers, over his followers. Oh, the symbolism here is extraordinary. It says in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God. So who did God tell this beautiful news of the Messiah to first? The temple shepherds. He was basically saying, you know how you do this every year? You raise these lambs, you take them to Jerusalem, take them to the temple, you do this every year. Okay, there is a lamb of God that's coming who's going to die for the world's sin so that they could be saved. It's gonna be once and for all. And by the way, temple shepherds, you're gonna be out of a job soon because we won't need to do this anymore. Instead, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. They run into Bethlehem. They're so excited that they literally tell everyone. They go praise God. Mary, Mary pondered. The shepherds praised. Mary pondered. The shepherds praised. May we have that kind of, that kind of heart, that kind of of a position this Christmas. May we have the pondering of Mary. God, you're a good God, even in the middle of all of the hardship, you're a good God. And may we have the praise of the shepherds that says, guess what, I have eternal life. Now because of the Lamb of God, that now I am in right standing with God and I cannot make myself get into right standing with God. Only Jesus can put me in right standing with God. <laughs> you know, faith begins with wonder and 
ends with wonder, and the space between is filled with gratitude. May Christmas be that way. May it begin in wonder and end in wonder and be full of gratitude. That's my prayer for you this Christmas. Let's do this, team. Let's do this, church. Let's stir our wonder. Let's stir our gratitude. Let's say, God, thank you. Let me pray with you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. God, help us to not look at Christmas as a season of stress or just surviving. Or maybe even, let's not just think of Christmas, God, as as just lights and a tree and presents. God, help us to get behind the story and really do soul searching. May we ponder like a little teenage girl by the name of Mary. (laughs) May we wonder, may we praise like the shepherds. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you for Christmas. We stir our wonder and our gratitude. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you, if you say, I want to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of my life, you know what? You can receive the best gift ever this Christmas season, and that is the gift of your sin forgiven and the gift of being able to have heaven as your home someday. You're not joining a church today. You're not doing that. Instead, you're just saying, God, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I just want, I want you to lead my life. And if that's you, I'd like to pray a prayer with all of us, and you can just pray along with, okay? But if you want to pray that prayer before we pray, just raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to make Jesus the leader of my life. Anybody? Yes, yes, yes. Guaranteed every location. Let's go ahead and pray together all of us, this prayer. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you love me. You died for me. And I want to serve you. Thank you for loving me with an unconditional love. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Could you put your hands together? We thank God.